So we're going to wrap up 1 John tonight, and um, that'll put us in 1 John 5. Uh, 1 John 5, verse 6, um, because the, the, the five verses there at the beginning of the chapter uh, continue some of the themes that were in chapter 4. But in, in, in verse 6, you pick up on a new thought. John says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That last verse kind of wraps up chapter 5, which is, is this just entirely random? I mean, if you're honest with yourself and you read this, you think, is, has John just, is he just kind of trailing off and just throwing in a lot of PSs and PPS? And these are like, you know, all these are like my, my last uh, thoughts here. Because for the longest time, people have wondered if 521 is just stuck out there. Like, well, what, what is that? What, where did idols come from? Why did he bring this up? I think there is some repetition. I think there is some covering again of what he said in chapter 5. But I don't think he's lost his train of thought. I, I think that he's, uh, he's driving home his point. He said all that, that needs to be said, and he's emphasizing some things. Now, I want to show you a continuity here. If you go back to chapter 1, 1 through 4, he says, 
he starts off this entire thing. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. In those four verses that open the letter, notice how much of that is picked up again in chapter 5. There's testimony. Uh, in, in, in verse 2, he's... He's opening with credentials, and his credentials are that, that, that he and the other apostles can testify to what they have seen, to what they have heard, what they have beheld, what they experienced. He's opening with testimony. And in verse 2, we proclaim eternal life. That shows up in a very prominent way in chapter 5. Um, he says that um, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he's writing so that our joy can be complete. He's writing because he wants that, that fellowship to remain true. He wants them to remain in the Son as they are in the Son and to hold on to what they've always believed. And he's given testimony to it. What you pick up in chapter 5 is a greater testimony I mean, you, we, he's saying, you thought that our testimony was great because we were there. Well, that's fine. But there's even a greater testimony than our eyewitness testimony. He's saying that the greatest testimony comes from God himself. And the way we experience that is through the spirit of truth. And he's, um, you know, what we would say theologically is that he's getting very Trinitarian. Now, Trinity and Trinitarian is not a word you're going to find in Scripture. I get that. However, the idea of God, the Son of God, and the Spirit are very much in the New Testament. And it's very much a part of the, uh, of the gospel accounts. So whatever you want to call it, it's there. Um, it's interesting. I, I had a professor when I was at the uh, Pagan University, and, the, uh, and he, he always used to criticize us, and he would say, you know, you Christians um, say you have one God, but you don't. And he'd say, you've got something like 15, 16 gods. And I was like, oh, well, he getting this and he would say uh you know and he would say well you start out with your three you know and then somebody would inevitably say well yeah but the three are one he goes that doesn't make sense okay then he would say then you have a fourth god you have satan i was like well now wait a second you know that doesn't but any kind of deity or any sort of uh angelic being he would claim as a god in the pantheon I'm glad I experienced that because it made me think and it made me, and see, and it's still with me. It's still with me and I'm still dealing with that. And, um, and it's made me think about what this, um, what this whole thing is about the Trinity. Well, 
I want to give you a thought because this is one of the things I picked up on the way. There's a fellow by the name of, his name is Abbott. Uh, he's, a, he's a mathematician, he's a writer. This is from long ago. And he tells the parable of a place called Flatland. Okay. And Flatland, imagine that Flatland is like a little world on a coffee table. And everyone in that world is two-dimensional. They have width, they have length, but they don't have depth. They're all flat. And then one day, a round object, a sphere, a ball, comes to Flatland, and he enters into Flatland. He's got three dimensions. But all they can ever see is one slice of him at a time. But what they see is they see, I mean, imagine... A, a ball going through a flat surface like this, it's going to start out very small, then it's going to get rounder, and then it's going to get small again. And Abbott was telling that as a, as a as sort of a parable of, of perspective, and um, it's, it's really kind of making an argument for how God interacts with us. We are caught up, and we have been caught up in, in, in history over, do you have three gods or one? God is a multi-dimensional entity. It's, it's an infinite number of dimensions to God. So that we experience God as the Father, sure. We experience God as he came to us and presented himself to us. Like the testimony says in the first chapter, we experience him as Jesus Christ, the Son. Sure. And we experience God as the Spirit. Yes. But the fact that it should be a mystery and mind-boggling us to that those three should be one, oh, we've just scratched the surface. I'm not, I'm not making the case for some, you know, that all other gods are God. I'm just saying that, remember again, our, our, our session this morning was about awe. When you read through Scripture and people encounter God, uh, even when they encounter one of God's angels, what's one of the things that has to be said? It's kind of the opening line. They must have angel training in heaven, and they say, when you visit earth, be sure and learn these three words, because you're going to have to say these three words so you can get into the further conversation. Do not fear. There must be something to behold when God, when God appears in, in, that, in that form. So he has to take on this form that we can understand and relate to, the Son. Now, I'll just leave that there because this is the kind of stuff that you can just puzzle over for the rest of your life. But God must operate. I mean, he, he operates on a level that, that, that you and I um, do not comprehend in the same way he does. However, John says at the same time, there are definitely things that we can know. So as much as God is a mystery, he is still knowable. We can know him. As we said this morning, our senses are tuned to God and to his awe. We have some measure of his spirit in us somehow because we were made in his image. We have the imprint of God in us. So I think that's why he's able to say here, um, there are three that testify, well, wait, before that, verse 6, and it is the Spirit who testifies because 
The Spirit is the truth. I, I, I don't know that John is giving us the definitive view of the Holy Spirit, but he's saying that the Spirit of truth testifies in us because we know it. We know the truth. And there is an intuitive level of knowing here that I don't think we've opened ourselves up to in the modern age. You know, ever since the days of the Enlightenment, when everything had to be proven by science, we thought that if we can't find some external proof, then somehow it doesn't exist. And that's not the case. Um, There is such a thing as intuitive knowing, and it happens all the time in ways that you and I experience and we take it for granted. Uh, One of the stories I love is the story about the... um, Uh, the physicist who sees the little boy riding around in circles on his bicycle and he says son did you know that there's a mathematical principle that says why you can ride upright on two wheels like that and the kid says no I didn't know that and he'd go well would you like me to explain it to you and the kid says I'm already riding the bicycle I don't know why I need an explanation I mean he knows it And uh, there's actually a chemist-turned-philosopher who, if if any of you want to search this out, his name is Michael Polanyi. And he makes the case that we can know things intuitively, that we can dwell in the knowing of things, that we don't have to have an objective experience uh, or an external experience of everything to prove that it's true. The classic examples of this, and this is the one that, well, let me give you this one first. Okay. Um, when, uh, when a physician e- examines, you know, maybe an unseen part, like a cavity, I mean, now we can image things, but, you know, the, the practice of medicine goes back to where, you know, they're going to they're gonna feel around like, you know, in, in your mouth or something like that, you know, and they're going, okay, I can tell that something's there. Now, here's the thing. They're doing this with instruments. They're doing surgery with instruments. But they sense that. That's because... The knowledge of the physician dwells in those instruments. Okay, let me get a little more simple even. When you um, hammer a nail, do you focus on your hand gripping the hammer or do you focus on the head of the hammer striking the nail? You're going, to, you're going to smash your thumb if you don't get this right. And, um, but I, you stop and you think about that, and it's like, you know what? It's true. We, we sense that, okay. Yeah, I remember when I was learning to use a hammer, my dad said, just focus on the head of the nail. And I'm like, well, I can't aim this crazy thing. It's not, and then after time, it becomes natural. Why? Because that hammer becomes an extension of your senses, You just have to feel it. You just have to know it. That kind of knowledge and that kind of understanding, I think that's what John's saying. In other words, it's valid to say, you know, the Spirit is truth, and that makes this valid, and why? Well, you just have to experience it. Come and see. Come and see. And I think that that we have something among us that we can share with people called wisdom. It's like the old saying, the man who said, you know, can you define art? And he goes, no, I can't, but I know what it is when I see it, okay? You know, there's a a gut sense that you just know that that's what this is. Everything does not have to follow or bow down 
to you know, absolute scientific proof. There is a way that we can know things. Oh, there's so many examples of this, and I could keep going, uh, but it's convincing to me uh, that, and I think this is the, the type of knowledge that John is talking about. He's talking about trust. I mean, there's people you trust, and you know that that trust could be broken, but there's people that you trust, and you will rely on that trust. Why? Because you know that that trust has been proven. And you know what? That's, that, that's not bad. That's not bad. John is saying you can trust us. The, the spirit of truth testifies to this. If you have the spirit of truth, he says you're going to know what we're talking about. You're going to experience it. And then he says there's other things that testify to this. And he mentions one of the interesting ones, the water and the blood. Now, there's a couple of options. I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what those are. But I'm going to give you a few options. He says that Jesus Christ, is, verse 6, is the one who came by water and blood. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. There's two events in the life of Christ that define who he is. Uh, Well, there's at least two. One is his baptism. And sometimes we overlook that. But that's important. That's mentioned in three of the Gospels, and it is the, it is the opening event of the, um, you know, of the Gospel message. That when Jesus Christ is baptized, you have the voice of the Father and the Spirit descending like a dove, or as Luke says, in the form of a dove. So think about it. Right there in the water, you have the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They're together. God is revealed and experienced by those even who are there in three ways. So it makes sense then that the water testifies to that. We know from the writings of of later uh, church history after the uh, New Testament that early Christians, at least up into the 3rd, 4th century, believe that when you were baptized in water their argument was not the meaning of the greek word they understood the meaning of the greek word is like you know it didn't have to be immersed in them the whole idea was that when you're baptized in a river you meet god christ and the spirit in the river we imitate him there was a connection made in the river of baptism in the waters of baptism now yes they had baptismals back then this isn't about the literal form. Whenever we think that we can trick God with some you know, legalistic magic, we'd better rethink that because that, that's not how God operates. I think they had a much better sense of this, that, that, that what they were doing is they were joining in. the. I think that's what Paul is writing in Romans 6, that you're joining into the life of Christ. You're meeting him in the water. If we've been united with him like this in his death, then we will be united with him in the resurrection. Now, the other event in the life of Christ is the cross and then the resurrection. But the cross is significant because at the cross, what happens is more than just a... um, there's more happening there than just a, uh, um, a sin exchange or a transaction between God and... Well, Chris, understand this. God is not accountable to any other force in the universe other than himself. 
So he doesn't have to pay off the devil for our sins or anything like that. Christ goes to the cross not only because of our sins, but because of his obedience. Remember that? He tells Peter, he says, if I want to, I can summon legions of angels. Christ does not have to go to the cross. He chooses because he is obedient to his Father. He is obedient to God. And he puts his trust in God and says, I will put my trust in you. Even though they carry out their ultimate punishment, I will put my trust in you that you will vindicate me. This is why he has the words of Psalm 22 on his lips. Because he's waiting for God to vindicate him. So the cross becomes very significant because the cross turns everything around. What we think is the end with the cross, with death, God says you will not get the last word. And he when, you read, when we read that little passage in Philippians, which is kind of a, the gospel encapsulated in Philippians 2, um, that um, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he let go of it and he humbled himself. See, it's not just our sins that, that, that caused Jesus to go to the cross. It's also his obedience. And, he's, and, th- and there is an example and there is, a, um, there is a way for us to follow. By the way, what the cross also says is the cross says that the way of obedience and the way of discipleship is sacrificial. That there are times, we, we don't follow Christ and get whatever we want. Sometimes it calls us to be sacrificial just as he was sacrificial. And to not sacrifice with passive aggressiveness. If you do that, then you're missing the point. I guess I'll give it up this time so that you can be happy. That doesn't work. That's not how we do it. It's much more than that. So, in in Philippians 2, he says, um, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he lets go of it, and he humbles himself, making himself obedient to death, even death on a cross, which is not just death. It's not a noble death. Not in the eyes of the world. It's shameful. Okay, and so our song there in Philippians 2, uh, Keith Lancaster made a point this weekend. You know, that may have been one of the earliest Christian hymns. It, it may have been. And so that song takes us down to death, even death on a cross. But then God exalts him. Raising him from the dead, giving him a name above all names, and at the name of Jesus every, name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The song goes up again. The blood may be a reference to the cross. So you would have the baptism, the beginning, and the cross, the culmination of the obedience of Christ. Because after the cross, God steps in and God brings about the resurrection and the exaltation. After that, Jesus is exalted. You know, the, the issue of obedience is kind of uh, moot at that point because he is exalted to the right hand of God. So that may be what it's a reference to. Now, it may also be, or it may alternatively be, a reference to our baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
because the blood plays a part in the Lord's Supper. And, you know, and, and I'm asking myself, and you may be asking this, so where's the bread? Well, maybe it's just not poetic to say the water, the bread, and the blood. You know, maybe it's better to say water and blood. And maybe it's some reference to the passage in Luke about the water and the blood. It could be both. But I think John's main point is there's something we know. There's something we do. There's something in our practices, our baptism, and it reminds us what this is about. The fact that we have these, um, I mean, why do we do baptism? Why do we do communion every week? Just because we're commanded or because that is a touchstone? That brings us back to the to our life connected to God and the connection that we have, not only with Him, but with one another. Everyone who comes to Christ is baptized. You don't get an option A and an option B. Everybody always wants to talk about the exceptions. Well, you know, what about the thief on the cross? Hey, what about the thief on the cross, okay? That, that's, that's not plan B for salvation. It's not, you know, you know well, I, I choose that option. No, you've got to go to a cross and die, and, you know, the, uh, which we do in a different way. But the baptism is common. It's our common connection. We were all baptized in the same river of faith with Christ. We all come to him. We all partake of the same loaf, of the same cup. We're all connected. We eat the same spiritual food. Paul in Corinthians will make this connection, and he'll talk about old Israel going through the desert, and they were all fed the spiritual food. They were all given water from the rock. John is ringing those familiar bells for these people, and he's saying the things that you have been doing. Because remember, this may be a group of Christians who are being criticized, ridiculed, and told that their belief that the Son of God could die on a cross is not accurate because God would not, God would not lower himself to take on human form and suffer a death like that. And so, so they may be, they, they are getting hit with all sorts of ideas that may be confusing them, and they may have people saying, what you believe is not so, and it may be leaving them with doubt. And John is saying, no, you have eternal life. You have it. And the things that we do when we gather together confirm that. Every Lord's Day, we confirm the salvation that we have. We, we say yes to it all over again. We know it's true, and we're passing that faith on. You know, it's a, I love it, because when the summer comes, that's always baptism season for our kids. And uh, I remember, you know, I, some people have said, you know, well, you know, how many baptisms have we had? Well, our kids come back, they, they go to camp, they all get baptized. Well, that doesn't count. You better believe it counts. You better believe it counts. What do you want? You want them to, ah, well, you know what, go sin for a while and then come back when you, no, let them claim that. Why do they do it? Well, it's peer pressure. They're seeing everybody else do it. You better believe it. But they also believe why do we do anything we do? Because we learn, we imitate each other. We don't need just simply information. We do need information. We need truth. But we also need imitation. We have to watch others. We have to see others. We have to learn from others. And John is saying we are reliable witnesses. He says you can imitate us. This is like Paul who says, follow me as I follow Christ. 
But in addition to that testimony, he says we have the testimony of God. And what that testimony is pointing to is verse 11. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. He's not saying you can have eternal life if you want it. You can have eternal life if you get it right. You can have eternal life if the price is right. You can have eternal life if you know the secrets. You can have eternal life if you say the magic words. What is he saying? He says, God has given us eternal life. He says, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This is for believers. This is for those who, and he's already talked about obedience. And that, that faith and obedience go together. So I would say for the most part, he, he's talking to people like us. All right? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That verse right there made a huge difference to me. Because there has to come a point when we have the confidence that we know that if we've put our trust in God, He's going to do right by us. Because if I have to rely on myself figuring it all out and getting it all right, I don't have a prayer. But if I can put my trust in him, then there's hope. There's more than hope. I can know. And this verse right here gives us the knowledge to know. Now, if you tend to think that ha that, that has, you know, that that leads us towards a kind of arrogance, you know, if anybody thinks that, if you ever have anybody say, oh, well, I wouldn't want to be that arrogant, then they're not listening to what this says. I always like the analogy of the, of the person that goes in for heart surgery. You know, if you go in and you trust your surgeon and you trust the surgeon's team and, and, you go in and you get your heart surgery and then your life is restored, your heart is restored, how ridiculous would it be for you to come around and brag about that and say, boy, you should have seen the way I got up on that table and the way I took the anesthesia and when they cut me open, I'm telling you, I was all right. I mean, they couldn't have done it without me. No, they couldn't have. They needed you there. But you were totally dependent on those who were taking care of you. It's like that at our birth, at our natural birth. It's a good thing we don't remember it because we didn't have much to do with it, okay? Other than the fact that we were present. A lot of other people did all the work, okay? Well, it's the same way with eternal life. But here's the thing. You know you were born, and you know that you are better after that surgery, and you know that you are better for a lot of things. Well, why can't we have that same confidence in God? I mean, if we have confidence in our physicians, if we have confidence in our preachers, if we have confidence in our uh, accountants, if we have confidence in our bankers, why wouldn't we have all the more confidence in our Creator and our Savior? John wants them to have this confidence because their confidence may have been shaken and I think this is why that he ends with that verse 21 when he says stay away from idols what are idols they're deceptions 
their deceptions. And it's, 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 it's not just anything that keeps us away from God. It's something that becomes a false God. It's something that distracts us and consumes us and takes away from our rightful worship of the one true God. Now, our idols, and we often mention material things, and that's true, it can be, and our worry about material things, but sometimes our idol can be our own confidence or our own tradition or our own way of doing things. And I think he's calling us away from all of that, and he's saying, I want you to rely on the testimony of the truth and the Holy Spirit. Look to the water and blood that testifies to this. Look to the one who has given us eternal life. And you can know that you have it. We'll let that wrap up uh, 1 John 5. There's always much more that we can talk about than, you know, what we ever have time for. But that's why we, we don't need to limit the discussion of God's Word and, and His work to moments like this. I think that's why the, um, the ancients in Deuteronomy 6, why they said, talk about this when you get up in the morning, when you walk along the way, when you, uh, you know... I mean, just to paraphrase it, you know, when you put your kids to bed, when you get up in the morning, when you go brush your teeth, whatever, you know, be talking about these things. Let everything, and I don't think he means in some hyper-religious way, but it means let this be a part of our everyday life. And around those who are with you, your friends, your family, whoever it may be, your neighbors, find a way to testify to the truth that you know about God. Because the way that others come to Christ may be simply to imitate what they see in you. Uh, Rod's going to lead us in this song, and those who need to partake of the communion can go to room 100 for that, and then Jim Wilson will dismiss us in prayer. Let's stand and sing.